The American POTUS Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit show supported by listener patriots just like you. To help us keep the program going, please join others around the nation by considering a tax-deductible donation. You can make your contribution and see what exciting plans we have for new podcasts and other outreach programs at AmericanPOTUS.org. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. On this episode of American POTUS, Benjamin Harrison. He followed in the path of his POTUS grandfather, calling Indiana home, serving in the military, the Senate, and the White House. And while he won the presidency in a squeaker, he was way more successful than Grandpa, modernizing the Navy and pushing for African-American voting rights. But just when he got things going, this grandson POTUS, who defeated Grover Cleveland, then lost to the same man just four years later. It's a tale of family legacy, very close elections, and a political opponent who just would not go away. Benjamin Harrison is on this episode of American POTUS. I'm Scott Brunn. With the help of presidential scholar Alan Lowe, we're opening the book on the men who have held our nation's highest office. In each episode, we'll tap into our nationwide cabinet of historians, authors, experts, and others to reveal the most compelling moments from these extraordinary patriots. To help us better appreciate our 23rd POTUS is the president and CEO of the Benjamin Harrison presidential site, Charles Hyde. This native Hoosier has spent more than a couple decades building a national reputation for innovative programs and public partnerships. Under his leadership, the Harrison Historic Site has experienced significant growth in attendance and is busy creating groundbreaking new concepts and programs. We will link to this wonderful site in Indianapolis on our AmericanPotus.com website. We encourage you to visit sometime soon. Charlie, thanks for taking the time to chat with us here on American POTUS. We want to know more about President Harrison. All right. Well, thank you for having me. Charlie, thanks so much for joining us. I, I wondered, how, how did being a grandson of a president affect a young Benjamin Harrison? Did, did he know his grandfather? He did. You know, it's interesting. So uh, Benjamin Harrison was born a Buckeye. So he was born just across the state line in North Bend, Ohio. And as it happens, it was in his grandfather, William Henry Harrison's home in North Bend, Ohio. So Benjamin Harrison was seven years old when his grandfather won the presidency as ninth president of the United States. And Benjamin Harrison was still nine years old. I'm sorry, was still seven years old um, when his grandfather, the ninth president, uh, passed away one month into his into his term of office. So he, he did know his grandfather. Um, I think that, you know, in his later recollections, he acknowledged that he didn't have like sharp memories of, of his grandfather, but certainly knew of that legacy and, and certainly his reputation. So he, he began his political career, especially in Indiana. He was a successful lawyer in the years before the Civil War. How did he begin that political career and what political party did he support? Well, so it's it's interesting because, you know, he, he was, I think, a very intentional person. You can certainly see that in sort of that decision-making process as he was going through college. He was very methodical in his choice of careers. Yeah, he thought about um, possibly going into the ministry or the law and decided ultimately that, that he could practice his faith and practice law. Uh, so he read law in Cincinnati. And when he and his uh, soon-to-be wife, Caroline, were looking at where they wanted to build their lives, um, they thought about staying in Cincinnati, uh, moving to Chicago, or moving to Indianapolis, and ultimately decided upon Indianapolis as having the best prospects for you know young, burgeoning law career. And so I think for, for Harrison, when you look at that, that political life, that it's very much bound up in his professional life as well. 
you know, he certainly came to national renown as an orator um, over time, and that served him uh, both on the stump and certainly um, at the bench. So when you're when you're looking at that that Harrison legacy of coming into Indianapolis, being elected as Supreme Court reporter, he contended that that was the the last elected office that he actively saw. That you know, subsequent to to being elected as Supreme Court reporter. Um, that other offices came to him and he felt obliged as a matter of public service to step up to those responsibilities and those opportunities. But I, I think certainly, you know, looking at that family's legacy, there, there clearly is a strong undercurrent of understanding the importance of civic duty and responsibility. Um, he saw those obligations um, resting firmly upon his shoulders. And certainly served the country as well in the Civil War. What what role did he play in, in the Civil War? Well, so... You know, here he was, um, a budding lawyer in Indianapolis, starting to get some traction with a law career. You know, it's interesting, you know, when you look at these prominent families from our country's founding, you know, Harrison's are front and center. Um, There's a tremendous civic legacy from the Harrison family with Benjamin Harrison's great-grandfather, Benjamin Harrison V, being a signer of the Declaration of Independence. But there was no inherited wealth, at least as far as Benjamin Harrison was concerned. And so in moving to Indianapolis, I think part of the appeal to him was that, you know, he, he said at one point that he wanted it, understood that he was the son of no man and actually looked forward to being able to make his own way. And so to, to be able to come to Indianapolis and um, build a life and to really embrace this community, he ultimately saw himself as a Hoosier by choice. And so when Governor Morton of Indiana was responding to Lincoln's call for 300,000 new troops, Morton called Harrison and one of his associates into his office and was sharing this conundrum he had of, of meeting that, that call for additional troops and, and confided in Harrison how much trouble they'd been having in um, their recruitment efforts. And so Harrison listened patiently, and there was a couple-minute pause, and Harrison ultimately said, if I'm needed, I will go. And Morton said, no, I'm not asking you to go, but I know that you know, you're quite the orator and, and can help make this case for why others might want to serve. And Harrison insisted that if he were to ask others to serve, that he himself would be serving as well. So he committed that day to raise a regiment, so a thousand troops, and set about creating the 78th Indiana um, from that moment on. Now, it's something we can come back around to, but that's, you know, sounds very noble, and I think certainly it was, but there was no expectation at that time that Harrison himself would ultimately serve. Um, when you look at, you know, his future um, political opponent, Cleveland, Cleveland simply hired a substitute. So, you know, there, there were ways at that time that you could have, in good faith, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, met that obligation per se, and Harrison saw it as resting firmly upon his own sh- shoulders, whereas others in that era might have you know, seen other ways out. Now, a- after the war, he was elected by the Indiana legislature to serve as a U.S. senator. So when he arrived in Washington, what were his priorities in the Senate? And given his background, this really amazing background in politics, was he automatically seen in Washington as a possible presidential candidate? You know, I think that's a that's a complex question. Dr. Charles Calhoun and his biography on Harrison, I think, did a really thorough job delving, you know, into you know, Harrison's trajectory to the presidency. That he was very much, you know, what sometimes characterized as a dark horse candidate. I I, I don't think by any means he he was uh, a shoe in, but you you look at 
you know, certainly his reputation within Indianapolis professionally, personally and professionally as one of the preeminent citizens and coming to attention statewide and then regionally and then nationally, you know, certainly his election to the Senate and having the opportunity to act kind of in the highest echelons of political life in this country, very formative for him in terms of his um, later political career. But it's, it's interesting looking at what he did as senator and, and some of the ways that he bucked um, both his own party, the Republican Party, and defied expectations. So it's interesting to discover, for example, that twice as senator, he called for legislation that would have protected the Grand Canyon. Now, obviously, that, that didn't happen in terms of like those full national protections until subsequent administrations. Theodore Roosevelt gets a lot of recognition with that effort with the creation of the national park system, but it also kind of misses some of those interim steps in what Harrison himself was later able to accomplish as president of the United States. Then, you know, just looking at some of those other areas, just where he came to some national attention, Harrison actually opposed the Chinese Exclusion Act as senator from Indiana. And so again, there, there's a lot of comp complexity and nuance, I think, to Harrison and, and what he was seeking to accomplish and really you know, acting in good faith as senator from Indiana. When he, when he sought the nomination in 1888, who, who were his competitors in the Republican Party for that for that nomination? You know, it's, it's interesting. And, and again, this is where um, the biography of the three volume biography of Benjamin Harrison by Harry Seavers or the um, one volume biography by Charles Calhoun. Is, is so helpful, is really trying to understand the dynamics of the convention system at that time and the multiple rounds of voting and the whole power plays and dynamics that were involved. Um, we know that Blaine, of course, had um, received the nomination in 1884 and narrowly lost that election. So Blaine had, in turn, been very coy about the election or the nomination in 1888. And as, as I understand it, I think was even traveling abroad during that convention. And so he, he wanted it understood, this is Blaine, that, that he was not interested and he wouldn't accept the nomination in 1888. But, you know, I should probably read more deeply on Blaine. But as I understand it, that, that Blaine always had his calculations. And I think that he hoped that if, if it were to come to a nomination for himself, that it would be in response to, you know, this great demand, almost unanimous demand that he that he would be the candidate. And so I think that there was some chagrin on his part when um, things went another direction. He had he had lent some support early on to Harrison as being the strongest among the field. But, you know, while Harrison, again, had come to regionally the national attention, he wasn't as prominent a figure as I think John Sherman uh, was another contender in that convention of 1888. But um, certainly the, the Harrison family name would have lent to his to his credit and his reputation and Harrison's efforts. He had done a lot of campaigning for other candidates and had earned, I think, a lot of goodwill um, and recognition for his oratory skills. So once Harrison did receive that Republican nomination for the presidency, how did he frame and conduct that campaign? And why did he and the Republican Party believe that they could successfully take on the incumbent Grover Cleveland? Well, as I understand it, it was very much a time of almost you know razor thin margins between the political parties. And so you had swing states, especially Indiana and New York. And it's where you see a lot of candidates hailing either from Indiana or from New York. Typically from Indiana, it would be more on the vice presidential side. 
Um, Benjamin Harrison was the only um, president elected from Indiana, from the state of Indiana. But you know, with those with those swing states and so much in the balance, um, I think it certainly played into their their calculations. For Harrison himself, once he received that nomination, June twenty fifth, eighteen eighty eight, was when um, the word came to him in Indianapolis. And it was interesting, you know, looking at that era, you had instantaneous communication. So the the news went out across the wire. Um, you also had telephones in use. So the news came to Indianapolis near instantaneously. And Harrison knew for certain that he had gotten the nomination because of the roar that erupted from the crowd across Indianapolis. And by that night, almost 10% of the city's population, so over 8,000 people, congregated around Benjamin Harrison's house, his residence here on the north side of Indianapolis, well, the old north side of Indianapolis, to wish him the best on the nomination. And, you know, he, he quickly formulated what um, is known as the front porch campaign and decided rather than trying to tour the country that he would have the country come to him and was able to, in some sophisticated ways, ensure that his message was clearly and consistently broadcast across the country, even though he himself was not, you know, barnstorming. So he ended up giving over 80 speeches to more than 300,000 people, um, starting right from the front porch of, of his house here in Indianapolis. It certainly helped that Indianapolis had become known as the crossroads of America. So there are many train lines coming in and out of Indianapolis. So these delegations that wanted to hear Harrison or have a chance to meet him, um, were able to um, quickly and efficiently come to Indianapolis and, and hear what he had to say. And he also was known as a tremendous extemporaneous speaker. And so he would have his speeches recorded as he would speak them and then would push out those uh, verified copies to the media nationally um, by the next day. And so what it allowed for is that one, that what he said couldn't be misinterpreted uh, because it had been very clearly documented, but then also that he was, you know, setting up this steady drumbeat of what he felt like the priorities were for the country and articulating them in ways that were, um, in many ways, electrifying. Yeah, obviously a successful strategy, but his victory was one of those few in American history when the Electoral College winner had fewer popular votes than his opponent. So how did that come to pass in this election, and how was it received nationally? What was the reaction to that outcome? You know, it's it's interesting. I've I've tried to better understand that just in, in delving more deeply into that that story of, of Benjamin Harrison and his election. So, as you know, he did lose the vote, but won the electoral college. And I know that again, his biographer, Dr. Calhoun, has delved into this subject more deeply, and really has framed it as as much an instance of voter suppression as anything else. When you look at the voting count from the South itself, which was a kind of solid block Democrat at the time, that it was apparent that, that significant voter suppression was happening even at that time and would come even more to bear in that election of 1892. And that much of that disparity could be accounted for with the clear voter suppression, specifically of black voters in the South, which at the time would vote overwhelmingly for the Republican candidate. So I, I think, you know, very much a divided country in that era, very close vote margins to begin with, but certainly you saw that reflected in that election of 1888 and for, you know, a number of different reasons. Well, as he entered the White House, who were his most influential advisors? Who were his 
cabinet members who had the most uh, say in his administration? You know, it's, it's an area of study that I would like to, to delve in a little bit more deeply to, to understand fully like who, who held the greatest sway. But I think, you know, it's almost without contention that you, you had a character as large as Blaine, you know, as Secretary of State, you know, really being in an outsized role. And so Harrison was careful in his creation of his cabinet to appoint Blaine um, or to, to make that offer late so that it wasn't perceived or, you know, in actuality, a Blaine cabinet. You have to wonder if there's an element of kind of the team of rivals, as Doris Kearns Goodwin has, has described it in, in Lincoln's cabinet, just where he recognized that, that Blaine was immensely talented, but also could cause a lot of mischief. And so I, I think that that probably set up some of the dynamic of, of his administration, some of the challenges that he faced. Did he get along well with Blaine in that cabinet? You know, it's, it's interesting, you know, with the, the benefit of hindsight, there, there seems to have been a, a fair amount of resentment. I, I think that Blaine probably felt like he had um, been denied something that was his due. And within Blaine's own family, as I understand it, specifically Blaine's wife, held it against the Harrisons, almost that they had won something that was theirs. Interesting, interesting. <laughs> so, it, yeah. you know, you have to be careful reading into history sure, sure. in that way. But that's that's certainly the impression that, that I've gotten just from um, what I've read over, over the years. But it, it set up an interesting dynamic. And, and I think in many ways, Harrison perhaps has been denied his due over the past century in part because Blaine, you know, kind of Blaine's ghost continues to, to hover over that administration. And there was so much that Blaine took credit for. And um, of course, Blaine would not take the blame. So what agency Benjamin Harrison has had in his own administration has been an open question. And I think that certainly the more I read and the more I see, it's very clear how intentional Benjamin Harrison was in setting the course of his own administration especially when you look at his legislative uh, successes during the first couple of years. And that's a perfect segue to my next question for you, Charlie. What were those uh, domestic accomplishments that he could point to? What were his biggest challenges on the domestic front as well? You know, it's interesting for Benjamin Harrison. He was asked prior to the election of 1888 if he might ignore or not make an issue of black civil rights uh, during the campaign. And Harrison rejected it out of hand. He said, I will make no compact of silence, you know, essentially, you know, in exchange for the presidency. Um, he was outspoken in his advocacy for black civil rights. And you can see that carry through in his inaugural address. You can see it carry through in his campaign and certainly in his priorities as a president, you know, narrowly, I think just by, maybe it was even by one vote, um, what would have been groundbreaking civil rights legislation that would have protected voting rights nationally for, for Blacks. And you can see in, in turn the way that the South strongly reacted um, to that effort. You know, similarly, Harrison had sought federal funding guarantees for education, regardless of race, to help ensure that, that Black children had the opportunity for, for fair education and also sought to pass anti-lynching legislation, again, with growing um, unrest in the South and I think a lot of depredations against the African-American community um, in the South at that time. You know, looking at some of the other priorities that Harrison set forward and he was more successful in, um, he called for and signed the Sherman Antitrust Act. He saw a really robust expansion of our uh, Navy for national defense, so two, two ocean Navy for national defense. You know, I think that when he took office that the United States Navy was maybe 13th in the world, maybe right behind Brazil. 
And by the time you left office, you know, you had the first modern battleships. BB-1 was actually the USS Indiana. Um, I think we had risen to maybe number six in the world. And so really made significant investments in, in the country and understanding the long-term needs of who we were and what we were seeking to be. Uh, so he also was able to um, create the Forest Reserve Act through a little understood provision um, that allowed him then to have the legal right as president to be able to set aside natural resources nationally. So that's finally where he was able to get traction and to give those protections to the Grand Canyon through that legislation that he had been unable to as senator. And so he put that into action and was able to protect um, tens of millions of, of acres of land nationally. So essentially creating the second, third, and fourth national park, the first military park, the first urban park. And I think that he was very forward thinking in that way. With the new Navy, and you said looking at our, our place in the world, what were his major foreign policy priorities? So I think that he had a strong sense of the best way for us to command respect in the world is to make sure that we were protecting our citizens and our our trade routes and certainly our military personnel. You know, one of the the major crises that that arose in terms of international relations during his administration was with the country of Chile, where you had U.S. Navy sailors that were attacked by policemen, one that was killed, I think another later died. And he sought reparations for those um, you know, unlawful killings of, of, our, of our sailors. And at first, Chile had refused to act. And um, Harrison was willing to take that country to the brink of war um, to ensure that we received our due respect and certainly that U.S. interests would be respected internationally. Um, so really took that to the brink and ultimately um, Chile relented. Interesting, you know, corollary of that is he was also respectful of other countries and understanding the importance of international relations. You know, certainly seeking to improve relations in our hemisphere with the creation of the Pan-American Conference during his administration. Acknowledgement when our country had done wrong against others, you know, certainly with the um, the murder, the lynchings of Italians in New Orleans during his administration and um, wanting to make sure that, that those unlawful deaths were redressed. Um, and ultimately, the United States paid reparations to Italy for, for those deaths. And it's just really interesting. You know, there's a lot of conversation right now about the appropriateness of Columbus Day, but its creation by Harrison initially was really to acknowledge the contributions of immigrants to the formation of this country. And so in, in response, in part, to the ill will that the, the killings in, in New Orleans of the um, Italian citizens had, had generated, really helping to refocus the conversation around those positive contributions over, over time by the citizens that have reached our shores. So a very um, eventful four years of uh, admirable efforts on the domestic and foreign fronts. But in 1892, he goes up against Grover Cleveland yet again. And this time, Cleveland wins, becoming the first president to serve non-consecutive terms. What explains Cleveland's victory over Harrison in 1892? I think there are a number of different factors at play. One of those is it certainly didn't help with Benjamin Harrison contending with the significant illness of his wife, Caroline Harrison, um, and ultimately her death in October of 1892. 
So while he received the nomination in 1892, there is some contentiousness there. Come back around to that here in a minute. But ultimately received the nomination, but he ultimately was not able to campaign for himself because of her significant illness and um, ultimately, you know, with her being on her deathbed. So for, for Benjamin Harrison, one of his greatest strengths was his ability to articulate these very complex ideas in um, relatable ways. So with that thought in mind, and you know, certainly with kind of the back backroom action within his own party, you know, this idea of civil service reform um, had been percolating up in a number of administrations over the years. Benjamin Harrison took it very seriously. He actually appointed Theodore Roosevelt to that role. And um, there, there's some fun stories related to Roosevelt and probably in some characteristic Roosevelt ways um, and how, how he um, undertook his responsibilities in that role. But, but Harrison really alienated a lot of his fellow party members and refusing to follow the, you know, at the time accepted patronage systems. Um, that he really felt like it was important to uh, personally vet any of these appointments that he was making and to ensure that they were qualified to be able to do the work that they were being tasked to do. And I, I, it sounds like it was exhausting for Harrison and it earned him no goodwill from any in his party, you know, beyond just acknowledgement of his intent. But they, they were most displeased, I think, with the, with the uh, consequences of that action. And it certainly did not, did not lend him their additional support or going above and beyond in that election of 1892, the picking up where he was not able to, to step into the breach and, and really ensure re-election. So it's, 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 I think it's interesting when you, when you look at this, you know, Harrison returns from his wife's funeral in Indianapolis. And you know, shortly thereafter, you know, you have the election uh, returns and Harrison finds that he, he's lost the election. And he said, you know, and I'm hearing the news, he felt like a man released from prison. I, I think that he, he earnestly sought to meet all obligations, thoughtfully, creatively, you know, in the best interest of the country, but just recognize the presidency is an enormous burden for, for any person to carry. Tell us more about Caroline Harrison. Uh, what was their rela- relationship like? What roles... Which was she able to play despite her, her lengthy illness? So Caroline Harrison is a really remarkable historical figure in her own right. So the Harrisons actually met while they were in college. So both Benjamin and Caroline Harrison were both college educated, you know, a rarity at that time, especially um, for women. But she was highly educated and refined, um, studied music, art, language, added a lot of you know, Harrison, I think you can see from his visage, is maybe a more somber, serious character. And she was recognized as being very lively. She enjoyed dancing and music and art. And so I think she, she added a lot of uh, liveliness um, to their relationship. But by all indications, he respected her deeply. You know, certainly you can, you can see that you know, coming into the White House and some of the priorities that she helped set forward. So she sought a major expansion of the White House itself, one that was ultimately defeated, as I understand it, narrowly, um, would have completely transformed what we understand, you know, the White House to look like and its its greater expansiveness um, there in the footprint of, of the White House grounds. Um, so it was left to future administrations to be able to, to live, up, live up to that vision but she was able to get an allocation, I believe, of $30,000 and allowed them to exterminate the rats oh, infesting the White House at the time. <laughs> they were able to introduce electricity to the White House. 
Um, and it was during those during those renovations and improvements, Caroline Harrison took it upon herself to thoroughly investigate and document um, a lot of what she found in the White House itself. So the beginnings of the White House China collection were really under um, her watch. You know, in basements and attics, she found furniture and china sets and everything else. And with it being the centennial of Washington's election, um, I think they were able to use that centennial occasion to really highlight the importance of documenting this, well, this national treasure in the White House itself, but certainly the contents and how they, they tied back into the country's history over the past century. So if you go to the White House Historical Association, they, they acknowledge fully that um, initial impulse toward historic preservation that Caroline Harrison lent to the efforts. Interesting woman. I'd love to learn more about her for well, sure. Well, and, you know, just some interesting other aspects of what she contributed. You know, she was able to use her influence to help ensure that women were admitted to study medicine at John Hopkins um, University. Um, she was also the first president general of the Daughters of the American Revolution. She was the first first lady to give a speech that she herself had written. She was also the first first lady to have her own uh, public art exhibition. So there are just all these interesting stories connected with her and the way that she was able to use that quiet influence to, to get um, things of real substance done. You know, it's interesting, too, you have um, during their during Benjamin Harrison's administration and Caroline Harrison, you have the first professional woman hired onto White House staff with Alice Sanger in Harrison's administration. You also have Francis Benjamin Johnson, who was really like the Harrisons gave her entree as the White House photographer. And she ended up taking a lot of those iconic photos of the American presidency into the early 20th century. So, I mean, there, there are all these interesting um, interconnections and stories. You know, it's one of the fun things for us at the Benjamin Harrison Presidential Site. Uh, several years ago, we had a special exhibit called Six Degrees of Benjamin Harrison. Because <laughs> somewhat like the Kevin Bacon game, yeah, yeah. you find all these unexpected interconnections that lead you back to Benjamin Harrison. And, you know, I think, you know, you, you look at, Harrison himself, he identified himself as a Hoosier and I think was very modest in that way. So he didn't really ever seek credit or attention. And while that hasn't done him much good in terms of popular awareness of his presidency, again, there's there's so much that connects back to Harrison and his good faith efforts to help advance the country that most people don't think about. I mean, some good examples of that, again, a centennial president and the recreation of the inauguration in New York City of, of Washington's inauguration. Harrison saw all the flags flying as he was going you know, through the streets for, along the parade route. And the thought occurred to him that, that the flags shouldn't be put away after the celebrations. And he asked that they continue to be flown in front of public buildings and schools. So that tradition harkens back to Harrison and his administration. Um, much in the same way, Harrison um, heartily endorsed the um, idea of the Pledge of Allegiance and its use in schools. So that tradition harkens back to his administration as well. So many things. What about post-presidency? When he goes back to Indiana, what, what did Harrison do in that post-presidency? Was he still engaged in politics? So after Harrison lost that, that election of 1892, he, went, he returned to law. Uh, so he continued to practice professionally. Leland Stanford, senator from California, saw an opportunity and invited Benjamin Harrison to lecture on the Constitution at his uh, new uh, college, which, as I understand it, had initially been conceived as, 
as more of a as more of like a, a trade school, um, but ultimately came to national renown in part because of Benjamin Harrison's uh, series of lectures on the Constitution at what became Stanford University. But I think in, in many ways he stayed in the public eye, although he acknowledged that ex-presidents should be seen, not heard. Um, so I think he tried to issue controversy, you know, after Cleveland had removed the stigma, let's say, of having lost an election for a sitting president. Um, Harrison was encouraged to run for the presidency again in 1896, but Harrison in turn rejected those entreaties and made way for McKinley ultimately to, um, to take, take office then in 1896. So Harrison remarried in the mid-1890s, so he had a daughter by his second marriage. So he had, in some ways, both a 19th century and a 20th century family. He was, let's see, he passed away in 1901 uh, when his daughter Elizabeth was only four, but his widow lived until the late 1940s. So there, there's this tremendous you know, family connection and interconnection through uh, both his first and second marriage. Um, in terms of the relationship, you know, both the Harrison, of course, to the Benjamin Harrison presidential site. So, Charlie, I want to know a little more about Benji's personality, and it probably starts with that name right there. He was kind of a stiff, right? He probably wouldn't like me calling him Benji. Yeah, he probably wouldn't care for that. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, as as certainly happens politically. Uh, people get tagged with certain characteristics that may or may not fit uh, their true personality. So I think Harrison was seen as very austere, uh, very formal. Um, you can certainly see that during his administration um, and accounts of both parties um, and their relations with him in the White House. And I, I think what was admired in George Washington uh, was resented in Benjamin Harrison, in part perhaps because, you know, when you're George Washington and you're six foot, you know, whatever, two or three, you command more authority than what you might characterize as our 44th tallest president. So not, 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 not the tallest of our presidents. He was known by his troops during the Civil War affectionately as Little Ben. So he was small in stature, but I think, I think where Harrison really shone was in those areas that were less immediately visible to the public. So he, he's been called the human iceberg. And, you know, certainly, again, his political opponents characterized him that way. And I would say that that might have been true, but only to the extent that only 10% of Harrison is probably visible above the surface. And it's one of the really fascinating things about delving more deeply into that, into that legacy and understanding the ways in which Harrison contributed positively to the development of the country, to our understanding of ourselves as Americans, really trying to seek to get past that that faction that factionalism and that that loyalty to state over nation that certainly caused the fracturing during the civil war and so i think harrison really sought to unify the country around first and foremost this idea of being americans and then you know retaining your state pride but again understanding that first and foremost that we were Americans and embracing that. Okay. So he, he was very serious, but come on, everybody has to let their hair down and relax in some way, especially when you're a POTUS. So how did he do this? What did he do to relax and have fun? So there, there are great stories uh, about Harrison in the White House, and there are a lot, there was this national uh, fascination with his grandson, Baby McKee. Uh, so it was Benjamin Harrison McKee, but known as Baby McKee. 
and just all these great stories centered around Baby McKee and, and uh, the great adventures he had with his grandfather. Um, we know that Benjamin Harrison, and actually this was even in the newspapers, Benjamin Harrison dressed up himself as Santa Claus as president just to entertain his, his grandchildren. The Harrisons are known for having the first decorated Christmas tree in the White House, brought in the White House staff and their families and, and gave them presents. So I think there's this really warm side to, to the 23rd president that just is less well known. There, there are also some great stories um, that we've come across over the years. Harrison also would get some relief from political life in Washington by watching his grandson, Baby McKee, in the front lawn of the White House itself. So Baby McKee had insisted upon having his own goat and goat cart and would ride these around the White House lawn. And one day something spooked the goat and off the goat goes, known as Old Whiskers, with Baby McKee in tow. And whether you're president of the United States or not, you better catch your grandson. Ultimately, you know, as, as they were running down Pennsylvania Avenue, you know, this, this is a visible, highly visible to the world that you have a president of the United States of the United States chasing his grandson uh, down Pennsylvania Avenue. So we actually we have this delightful uh, children's book called Old Whiskers Escape with marvelous illustrations of this true story of, of a president and his grandson. Again, just you know, you can't make that stuff up. So again, I think it speaks speaks to him as a man of action. Certainly, there are other great stories related to Harrison, and I think in, in some ways maybe gives better insight to him. Another you know, great story that we've come upon in you know, pre-Secret Service days, there really weren't much in the way of protections for presidents. So Harrison was attending a, um, a dinner in the White House and heard a commotion downstairs, and so went himself down the stairs to see what was going on and came upon two off-duty police officers trying to restrain um, this enraged man that was calling for the president. You know, where's where's the president? I'll beat the you know blankety blank out of him. And Harrison, you know, gets down there just in time to see one of the policemen knocked out. Harrison says to the other one, "What can I do to help?" And he's like, "Just help me restrain him." So there there are two different accounts of what of what actually happened. And you can find this story on the White House Historical Association's website too. But uh, so one of two things happened. Either um, Harrison came down and knocked the guy out cold and then bound him up or pulled down the curtain cords and bound the gentleman up hand and foot just to restrain him. And so ultimately no charges were filed. The man came back and apologized to, to Harrison for um, his behavior. Turned out, I think he was the stepson of a senator and had gotten ragingly drunk. But again, it just, you know, Harrison, I think, was very much a man of action. You, you could certainly see that in his rise, you know, during his Civil War service. Um, by the end of the war, he was breveted as Brigadier General for valor in battle. So certainly, again, his, his troops recognized him as doing his utmost to watch out for their interests and to make sure that they were well-trained and well-equipped to be able to do their duty. So as you just mentioned, so he was a grandfather, a father, obviously, a general and a president. Which title do you think meant the most to him? Without question, he saw himself as General Benjamin Harrison. In fact, preferring that title to uh, President Harrison. And as he, as he described it, he said he sacrificed more 
for the title of general than he did for that of president. And so he, he preferred to be known as General Harrison over, over President Harrison. That goes along with a lot of presidents of that era. Well, and I think for you sure. know, looking at another one of those legislative priorities for Harrison was pensions for veterans. You know, tried to pass legislations on, on numerous occasions that Cleveland um, repeatedly vetoed. Again, Cleveland, who had hired a substitute for a Civil War service. And here you have Harrison as a veteran trying to make sure that the country lived up to the obligations it had to its veterans. So I think another way in which Harrison, you know, left a legacy to the country. So here's a fun fact. He was the last POTUS to have a beard while in office. That's true. (laughs) My question, did he care a lot about his personal appearance? Was he self-conscious about how he presented himself? Well, so as he was the second shortest president, um, as we've established. James Madison, right, was the shortest. shortest. You know, he he came in at about five foot six. So if you looked at average height in that era, he would have been right in that average height range, but I think was probably sensitive to, to his height. And so in a lot of the photographs that you see, he's seated because apparently he had a longer torso. And so once seated, you know, he looked, you know, much more imposing perhaps than standing less so. By all indications, you know, he was very careful in his dress. He was known for being a little more rotund, maybe uh, allowed him to pull off the Santa Claus outfit a little better than some. Again, I think, you know, certainly carried himself with a great measure of uh, dignity in his bearing. Charlie, thanks for this really, really interesting look at our 23rd POTUS. The Benjamin Harrison presidential site sounds fascinating. I'm definitely planning a trip. Now, do you have any big plans for the site, like in 2022 and beyond? So the Benjamin Harrison Presidential Site as an organization, of course, is is certainly focused on increasing public participation in the American system of self-government um, through the life story, arts, and culture of an American president. And so that's something that, that we've been able to do for many years through sharing that story of Benjamin Harrison and his life and times. But I think our work has is increasingly informed by the greater relevancy of the presidency and, and looking at Benjamin Harrison as a representation of one of those models of leadership um, that we can learn from. So when you're thinking about presidential organizations and where we can contribute value to our communities, you know, we think of ourselves very much as being locally relevant and nationally significant. So much like Harrison himself was, he had a preeminent citizen who also you know, rose to the highest office in the land. And when you, when you think about this by the numbers, you think about since our country's founding, there have been over 500 million citizens. And of those 500 million, just over 12,000 actually served in Congress. I think we're up to 115 that have served on the Supreme Court, but only 45 individuals and 46 administrations out of a half billion people have been president of the United States. So. So there's this really compelling uh, story to each of these 45 individuals. There's some reason why their fellow citizens called them to the highest office in the land. Now, their legacies may be good, they may be bad, they may be somewhere in between, but there's something that we can learn from them. And there's some greater understanding that we can glean that will have relevance to the conversations that, that we're having today. And so we, we recognize that at the Benjamin Harrison Presidential Site. And so we're seeking to invest of ourselves in this larger sense of civic, civic duty and obligation that we have as an organization, much as Harrison himself saw those duties and obligations as, as a private citizen. So um, some of the, the work that we're seeking to accomplish in the coming years, you know, we've just undertaken uh, a $6 million capital campaign 
um, to make substantial improvements to the um, two and a half acres of grounds that we have here surrounding the Benjamin Harrison presidential site in downtown Indianapolis. We're making about 1.5 million improvements to the historic structure itself, recognizing that it's a national historic landmark. And then we're also seeking to advance our work, share it with the, the, the larger community um, near and far and, and ways that um, other presidential organizations and museums can serve their communities. So, you know, one example of that is we've served as a polling site and a voting center and have called upon our peers nationally to do the same. We've also started several initiatives with national implications. One of those is the Future Presidents of America program, which invites young leaders 12 to 16 to learn from the stories of the American presidency. And we're excited that program has now expanded out to um, partner institutions. Um, so Andrew Jackson's The Hermitage and the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum are now also both offering Future Presidents of America program. Um, and again, really engaging this uh, new cohort of leaders in our communities and sharing the, the lessons of presidential leadership. Uh, we also are launching actually this President's Day, a new initiative called Project POTUS that's actively seeking to engage uh, middle school learners and um, understanding the American presidency through one minute videos. So it's a national competition where they'll be um, completing one minute videos and submitting them through our contest platform with opportunities for scholarships and prizes. So we're excited to be able to engage middle school teachers and students and that initiative. So if you wanna learn more about that, um, you can go to presidentbenjaminharrison.org or um, projectpotus.org to, again, to learn more about that initiative and other work that we're doing to really help encourage dynamic citizen engagement, uh, the promotion of democratic values, um, and really honoring civic participation. It certainly sounds like you're a man of action as well. Well, you guys are busy. Well, we, have, we have a lot of uh, great stories to be able to draw from, you know, certainly with Harrison's legacy as a president. But I think it also is of greater value to certainly to our community, but the country at large to really to have the understanding and context of these highly complex individuals. Um, they're not one dimensional. Uh, they're not two dimensional. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're real with all their um, strengths and weaknesses. And it's important for us to understand all facets of their contributions, um, positive and negative to the development of our country so that we can better inform ourselves um, for the future. Well, we couldn't agree more here on American POTUS and we, we really appreciate you taking the time, Charlie, to join us. We hope you had a good time. Well, thank you so much, Scott. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Alan. And um, again, we encourage anyone that, that wants to learn more can certainly find more information at our website or you know read either of the fine biographies that, that I shared earlier in the interview. Some of our presidents are rightly seen as giants, men like Lincoln, Washington, FDR. Others are seen often as failures. In that category, you might put James Buchanan or Franklin Pierce. And then there's a group in the middle, a group that had some successes, some failures, and now have largely faded from the public's memory. I hope that American POTUS has shown that even those presidents seen as failures had some successes, and those seen as giants experienced some failures. By studying them, we learn that all the presidents are human beings, subject to all the good and bad that that entails. Each and every one of our presidents was in the arena and taking actions we may disagree with, but that he believed were the right actions to take for the nation. 
All our presidents were very influential figures in their own time, who left an imprint on the entire country. But then, for some, the legacy becomes questioned or muted. It's inflated or deflated. It's impacted by developments like rejection at the polls. Benjamin Harrison is among those. He was not re-elected to the presidency, losing instead to the man he had ousted four years earlier, Grover Cleveland. But Harrison's story is important and must be told if we are to understand the history of our nation. We are fortunate that dedicated people like Charlie Hyde and his colleagues at the Benjamin Harrison Presidential Site work to preserve and present history that is all too often forgotten. Thanks for listening to this episode of the American POTUS Podcast. We'd like to thank Charlie Hyde for joining us on this episode about Benjamin Harrison. More information on the Benjamin Harrison Presidential Site in Indianapolis can be found on AmericanPOTUS.com. If you have questions on this episode or ideas for future topics, you can easily send us a note on AmericanPOTUS.com, Facebook, or Twitter. We would also appreciate you taking the time to provide a positive rating and review on the player you're listening to right now. And if you're new to American POTUS, please check out the 60-plus episodes that are available in the playlist covering the presidents and the presidency from the very beginning. Graphic design for American POTUS is by The Thought Bureau, an original music score by Jonathan Clark Music. Finally, it's our presidential last word from Benjamin Harrison, quote, I pity the man who wants a coat so cheap that the man or woman who produces the cloth will starve in the process. <laughs>